This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. You've heard that journaling can be an effective way to cope with stress. Well, it's something that I have used in my own life. Did you know that it can also be used to treat PTSD? I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. So there's a new study out of Boston University that found writing-based therapy reached the same results as the current recommended treatments for PTSD. But writing therapy accomplished this in fewer sessions. We heard from one of the authors of that study, Denise Sloan. She's a professor at Boston University, and she also helps lead the Behavioral Science Division of the National Center for PTSD. She's a psychiatry professor, too. So how common is post-traumatic stress disorder, Denise? Are there people living with PTSD who have never received a formal diagnosis? Yes. So it's fairly common um, in the, it ranges uh, for men and women, and it ranges depending on people's backgrounds. But generally, uh, current rates of post-traumatic stress disorder is approximately 6% in the general population. And in terms of how many people are potentially living with it, a lot of people don't know that they have post-traumatic stress disorders. So they, they might know that they don't feel good, but they don't quite know why. Um, and even if they do know that they have post-traumatic stress disorders, a lot of people don't go to treatment for it. Mm. Um, either it's, you know, they're embarrassed or they don't have the resources to go or they just don't know where to go to get treatment. So what does this look like? What, what types of symptoms are associated with PTSD? You said people will say that they don't feel good and they don't know why. What, mm-hmm. what is that? Post-traumatic stress disorder is one of the few um, psychiatric disorders that's directly linked to a a lifetime event. So something catastrophic happens to someone, a catastrophic life event, that maybe they had a serious accident or they were physically assaulted or sexually assaulted. That's how um, you need to have a traumatic life event to have the rest of the, the diagnoses. So other symptoms that commonly occur with this is that uh, people have intrusive memories of the event, so memories that pop into their mind about the trauma event itself, that they don't want to be thinking about it, but it just kind of comes to them, or they have frequent nightmares about the event. They might have symptoms of irritability or anger, and they're not really sure where it comes from. Um, and they feel uh, really hypervigilant of symptoms of um, uh, like danger in their environment, so maybe mm-hmm. they're double-checking their locks. Mm-hmm. Or looking out the window to see is anybody out there. Those are common symptoms of PTSD. And and the main difference you would say between PTSD and other common diagnoses like anxiety or depression. 
Well, really that it's specifically linked to a trauma event that happens in one's life. Um, and the intrusive symptoms are really about uh, the trauma event. I forgot one other symptom that's important is avoidance of both thinking about the trauma and memory, mm-hmm. um, as well as avoidance of people, places, situations that remind them of the event because they don't want to think about it. So before we get into the methods that you you studied, I, I do want to make sure that we're all on the same page and we understand the current treatments for PTSD, like cognitive processing and prolonged exposure therapy. What are the goals of those therapies? So both of these therapies are treatments that focus on the trauma memory in some way. And in cognitive processing therapy, it focuses on trying to uh, realign like how a person thinks about the trauma event itself. For example, a lot of times when people have had a, a traumatic event and they have PTSD related to it, they have thoughts about that they could have stopped it or it's they're, they're to blame for the event, and it's not realistic. It's not rational. So trying to get them to sort of change the way that they, they see the event or think about it. And prolonged exposure, the goal is to really confront uh, the trauma memory, and that is done by repeatedly recounting it in session with the therapist, as well as uh, confronting people, places, situations that a person is avoiding because mm-hmm. it reminds them of the event and having them do that in between the sessions as assignments. And how many sessions are we talking about here? How many do you need before a patient starts to see results? So both of those treatments generally are, are an average of 12 sessions uh, that a person would attend, and they're usually about an hour each session. So it's 12 sessions in addition to doing between-session assignments uh, that's thought to be critical for both of the treatments. So let's dig into your work, Denise. Tell us about the most recent clinical study and what you were setting out to prove. Sure. Um, So I um, co-developed this treatment called written exposure therapy where basically we were discovering that we could get good treatment outcome for people diagnosed with PTSD by having them write in session Uh, five times, five sessions, 30 minutes of writing within each session about a specific trauma event that was causing their PTSD. And so people write in a very specific way. In the first few sessions, we have them write about the details of the trauma memory, what happened, who was there, what did you hear, what did you smell, what did you see? And then it progresses to writing more about the impact of this event. So how has it affected your life and how has it changed the way you live your life and how you relate to other people? And so we were finding that we were getting good effects with um, having them write about it. Um, They also are guided with a clinician in the room. The clinician helps give them feedback if they're not following the instructions, you know, trying to get them on track, Mm -hmm. as well as checking in with them after each writing about, like, how it went for them, what their experience of the writing was like. And we've been finding that that works well um, for people that have PTSD in terms of reducing their their PTSD symptoms, um, no longer having a diagnosis of PTSD anymore. And uh, we have few dropouts. So people, most people who enter the treatment do complete it. So, and there's no between session assignments either with Mm. this treatment, which is pretty amazing. So in this study that we just um, had published, we directly compared it to prolonged exposure, which is another exposure-based treatment for PTSD. As I mentioned, it's about 12 sessions on average. Right. And uh, we wanted to see, like, is it just as good in terms of the outcomes for PTSD, even though there's a lot less 
of um, treatment sessions and no between session assignments. So that's what we did. And so we're clear, in order for this therapy to be most effective, patients need to write by hand, correct? Yeah, uh, well, yes, we have them write by hand. Um, so instead of typing, we don't know if it's equally effective if people type or write. What we do, what I think is probably happening is when people write by hand, it does slow the process down. And really what we want them to be doing is thinking about that trauma memory, really kind of confronting it. What happened and who was there? And for some people, they type very quickly. And perhaps they would be typing so fast that they, they wouldn't be as engaged in that trauma memory as what is probably needed for them to get a good outcome. Mm-hmm. You know, and PTSD, for a lot of people, they associate that with veterans, right? What type of patients were you seeing in your clinical trial? And do the so demographics were, matter? Yeah. I mean, veterans are actually harder to treat. We don't know why, um, but they they don't have as good of outcomes and uh, with PTSD treatments, and they tend to drop out at higher rates. I did, um, with the study that I'm talking about, we did do it specifically with military veterans, but we've had other studies that we've done with written exposure that were with civilians, and they've responded extremely well. Why might someone prefer writing to the much more common talk therapy, Denise? <clears throat> so, you know, writing, for some people, it might be easier for them to write it down than to say it out loud to a therapist. So for some of the, pe- the people and the things that they've gone through, they might have a sense of, of shame, whether or not that's reasonable for them to have it. They still feel, you know, some sense of shame, and it might be easier for them to write it than to say it out loud to a therapist. Yeah. It's also easier because it's only five sessions. Right, right. A, mu- a much shorter length of time. Uh, what would you, in your pr- professional opinion, say makes written emotional disclosure so effective? What are folks so getting no out more, of writing? Yeah. It's no more effective than the current treatments that we have for PTSD. The benefit is that it's shorter. Like, we can get the same kind of outcomes in less time. Right. And and for a lot of clients, like, it's hard to go to treatment every week for three months. So, you know, that's the benefit of it. Why does it work? It works, we think, because the same reason that other treatments work. It's important to confront the trauma memory. What seems to drive post-traumatic stress disorder is someone's um, strong sense of that they don't want to think about what happened to them. And having a traumatic event is different than other things in your life where you could probably say, I'm just not going to think about that. I'm going to put it to the side. But a trauma memory, there's just no way not to think about it, mm-hmm. um, that you will keep coming back to it. So the people that go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder are the people that are just not willing to let themselves think about the event or the feelings that they have surrounding it. So in some ways, we have to, um, to, for treatment to work, would they have to confront, like, what happened to them and their thoughts and feelings surrounding what happened to them? Yeah. And that's why we think written exposure therapy works, because that's what we're trying to do. I see. And and to that end, I mean, you've mentioned getting, you know, similar results for a shorter time with the writing therapy. What do you consider a result? What are you looking for? And, and because I, I, I don't know that there's a yeah. cure here. Yeah, 
you're totally right. We never talk to clients about curing PTSD symptoms because they're probably always going to have some symptoms um, of, you know, after you experience a traumatic life event, you're right. always going to feel sad when you think about it. So it's not realistic to say this isn't going to bother you anymore. But what we, um, it's, it's a great question, like what is a good outcome? But they have a significant reduction in their PTSD symptoms, uh, also that they no longer meet diagnostic criteria. Most importantly, you know, do they get back to living the kind of life that they were living before and that they want to live? You know, is it is it something that's still getting in their everyday in the way of living their everyday life? Is it affecting their relationships, their ability to work or just function you know, to do daily tasks? That's really what we're talking about in terms of effective treatment for PTSD. So, what do you hope to see then as a result of this research? Um, I hope that what ends up resulting from this research is that uh, it's disseminated across providers and that more people can access PTSD treatment than we could um, reach before. So we know we do have effective treatments for PTSD, but a lot of people are out there who don't uh, seek these treatments or they don't complete the treatments if they do start the treatments. So I'm hoping that having a brief treatment approach for PTSD leads to more people being reached who need to be reached. You think it's likely that federal agencies will update their recommended PTSD treatments to include this writing-based approach? I do. Um, not just federal agencies. I think all treatment practice guidelines will start to include written exposure therapy as a first line or recommended approach. What needs to happen is there has to be a number of studies uh, that are well-designed studies with uh, good comparison conditions that show that written exposure therapy work. At this point, there's now multiple studies that are well-designed showing that it, it works well and it's just as good as these other first-line treatments. So I think because of that, you, we will start to see that when clinical practice guidelines are updated, written exposure therapy will be included as a first-line treatment approach. We've been talking about PTSD treatments and the use of writing therapy with Denise Sloan, the Associate Director of the Behavioral Science Division of the National Center for PTSD. She's also a professor of psychiatry over at Boston University. Thank you so much for breaking that down, Denise. My pleasure. Thank you for, uh, again, for inviting me. We just learned a lot about the mental and physical health benefits of a writing practice. Now let's put pen to paper. We'll hear from two experts about how to build a writing routine that works for you. Beth Jacobs is a licensed clinical psychologist who has over 35 years of experience with therapeutic writing. She's the author of several books, including Writing for Emotional Balance. And Bree McLaughlin is a licensed social worker. She uses a writing-based therapy that's known as poetry therapy when treating clients in her private practice. Now, as a journalist, I do a lot of writing. I wouldn't call it therapeutic exactly. So what takes writing from being a task to being therapeutic, Brie? Sure. So I think, well, there are several factors, but um, one is the content that you're writing, and then two, how you're writing it. And so really, if you're working with a therapist, they can really guide you in making sure that the process is therapeutic and you're not just writing down all the negative emotions and getting bogged down, right? So we want to guide you through that and help you to not only express your emotions, but also to be able to integrate them 
and be able to um, change some of those thoughts and help yourself to feel better. Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, that's the goal, right? Definitely. Is to feel better. Um, same question to you, Beth. I mean, I, I talked about the fact that I write every day, but I don't find it therapeutic because it's for work, right? So <laughs> what what do you think takes writing from being a task to being therapeutic? Um, well, I very much agree with Bree, and um, I kind of summarized it by saying that it's the idea of writing for yourself alone that is the issue, mm -hmm. that it's not about the product or um, the outcome of the writing, but it's purely for yourself and it's purely for the process. That's, I think, what takes it um, into the realm of being therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Expressive writing, Beth, that's another term mm -hmm. used by psychologists. Yes. It, it means writing that puts your thoughts and feelings into words. And it can also be used to cope with traumatic or distressing situations. So talk to us about the difference Absolutely. between expressive and therapeutic writing. Um, there's a big overlap. I, I think you can't do expressive writing for long without some therapeutic benefit. And I'm very heartened to hear um, what Dr. Sloan is saying and working on um, about bringing this, you know, specifically into um, the treatment realm. Um, but when um, when you're writing, the writing will teach a person to listen to themselves. And there's an almost automatic therapeutic benefit. You refine your feelings and your thoughts by articulation. There's a certain kind of cushioning you put between experience and expression when you write. Mm. And it kind of gives you this perspective. It decreases self-judgment. Um, it's... It, um, it relieves a certain kind of energy by writing. I think whether you use the keyboard or the pen, it's a physical act. And um, I kind of consider it, which is kind of a pun on your your uh, title of your program, but I, I consider it a mental reset. You kind of clear out your filters and yeah. fragments of thought when you write for yourself and just to enjoy the process and let the process take its own life. Yeah, good to hear that, you know, whether it's handwritten or, or typed, some of the same yeah. effects can come about. Does the content yes. of your writing matter, Beth? Um, like what you're writing about? No, I don't think it does. Okay. Um, now, when in, in the kind of work that Dr. Sloan is doing, I think it is very important to focus on the deeper feelings and the traumatic events. And the original research about the benefits of writing compared groups that wrote about traumatic feelings and events very deeply and groups that wrote about superficial things like what I did today. And the benefits were different and related to writing about the traumatic events. But what I think is that when you write just for yourself, you um, kind of automatically deepen into what the necessary content is. Mm -hmm. Bree, what are the mental health benefits of these practices? Walk us through that. Definitely. So increased self-esteem, increased um, feelings of happiness, contentment, better ability to work through and you know, solve problems, um, as well as really, I think, like I said, improved confidence yeah. and decreased symptoms if somebody is struggling with a mental illness. And just really integrating those thoughts and feelings helps a lot. So um, when I do poetry therapy with a client, I will often bring in a poem to this session that 
has something to do with what they're going through in their life. And the way I explain it to people, it's like the way it starts is, you know, when you're listening to a song and you're like, oh, my God, that's exactly how I feel. Or that's exactly what I'm going through right now. Well, you know, all poems are all songs are basically poems. So basically getting that is the starting point, the tip off of this poetry therapy session. I love that. And then we have a discussion about the poem and it really helps people often to get new insights into, you know, what am I going through and how can I manage the situation? Yeah. How are your patients responding to, they, to the they therapy? They respond, you know, very, very positively because it it's just a different way of thinking about the problems and also even for them to just realize sometimes, wow, I'm not the only one going through this or I'm not the only one carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders, right? And then we go on and I'll give them a writing prompt and they'll write for some time on the topic. Mm -hmm. And like Beth was saying earlier, it's all about the process, not the product, because sometimes we get bogged down You know, we all did writing in school and it has to be for a grade and it has to have, I always tell people, don't worry about spelling, punctuation, grammar, none of it. It's purely for you. Just like you're just jotting something down for yourself. Yeah, exactly. I love that. And then people get into this meditative flow. And I think Beth talks about that in her Buddhist book as well about, you know, getting into the flow. And so once people are able to let go of these filters... Um, like Beth said, it's just for you and the therapist doesn't even have to look at it if the client isn't comfortable. Right. right. Usually they are and, and we'll have a, a good discussion. Yeah, I love that. Beth, what about the, the physical health benefits? And, and I'm curious how often and how long someone should engage in writing to be able to see some of these health benefits that we're talking about. Um, well, the, there's a, a whole body of research that was started with James Pennebaker, and this is old news. It's, it was in the 1980s, mm-hmm. and um, the, that original study I described where uh, college students either wrote about a traumatic, difficult event or something superficial, um, in that study, they wrote for 20 minutes uh, over the course of three days, three evenings, mm-hmm. actually. So that's very minimal treatment. Um, the fi- their first finding was that in the semester following this experiment, the group that wrote about traumatic events used student health services less than the other group significantly. Okay. So there was a global well-being of- effect. And since then, there have been there are numerous studies. And if you look at James Pennebaker's website, he, he lists them. There have been really hundreds. And they've been with, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, um, asthma, uh, T-cells, mm. cancer. I mean, I, I, they're just really, and wow. measures that are objective, like um, O2 levels in the blood. Um, and I know there's one with T-cell counts. Um, they're, they're just hundreds. Yeah. So really? there are Isn't quite that, a few specific benefits. Yeah. Is that, Beth, the same study that I'm thinking of where the T cells, the number of T cells increased and people's immune systems were boosted? Is that, that the one? That is it. Yeah. And, and can I say an aside that you, you found Bree and I, Bree and I have worked together in a wonderful expressive writing group at oh, Family great. Focus of Evanston yes. and with eight to 11 year olds. Oh, um, oh, really? So, so we, some we know young ones. So, 
nice to hear. Yes, yes. Beth has been an amazing mentor, and I've learned <laughs> so much from her in just a short time. Oh, I love I, I love this connection. Yeah. Well, yeah. Tell, tell us so, more about your own your own writing habits. You first, Beth. I mean, do you journal? Oh God. <laughs> yes, I, <do. laughs> I, I mean, if you I, said no, I would be shocked. Yeah, yeah, you would be. But if you saw the piles of uh, notebooks, you might be also, even though I cleared out it. At at one point in my life, I actually cleared out the notebooks and I kind of went through and I, this is a side story, but I, I, uh, I kind of clipped certain parts that I liked and then I shredded like maybe 40 years of journals. You shredded them? Oh my. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, (laughs) I, I've been journaling since I was probably nine or 10. And, um, I, you know, that idea that writing teaches you to listen to yourself, I really feel personally. Mm. And um, it's really been a, an evolving process. Um, and, you know, it's really, it's really come to be kind of my mode of engaging my inner self with my life. And I, I, um, I do it consistently but not super regularly okay. and I and I just enjoy it and it um it has it does develop its own life yeah and and it's really evolved over time now Brie let's get back to your poetry therapy I, I hear you have a mm-hmm. poem to read for us oh yes so this is um this book is called the princess saves herself and this one by Amanda Lovelace and I found it to be particularly therapeutic and so she has three sections and in the first section she talks about trauma that she went through and how she evolves from a princess to a damsel in distress and then the third section is she is the queen of herself and I just really wanted to do a plug for this book because I think it's so helpful. Um, So the first poem in here she says once upon a time the princess rose from the ashes her dragon lovers made of her and crowned herself the mother effing queen of herself. How's that for a happily ever after? And wow. I just, I just, you know, recommend this to clients and even, you know, for myself, I feel like. Well, I'm hearing so you, you, you have, you have found expletives. <laughs> I'm glad you read that, that excerpt. Uh-huh. You have found that expletives are particularly cathartic. Why? Yes. You know, I think it's something about having the freedom to say it. You know, and just um, there's more emotion connected with those words, I think. And sometimes when we grow up and we're not allowed to say it, sometimes it kind of gets bottled up within us, right? And like you said, the catharsis, when you say it, there's like this release, kind of like the feeling you get after a good cry and you're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it works. There's, there are positive benefits there. Um, and you're a poet too, right, Beth? Yes, I I I do bring poetry into, you know, the work, certainly the the groups that Brie and I did together. Um, It's funny, we have one day that's called Write and Rip, where we allow (laughs) the children to just do whatever they want, and nobody looks at it. And then we have a big, you know, kind of cathartic ripping party over the garbage can. Ah. um, I thought you were going to say that you let the children run wild with expletives. <laughs> that's where I thought you were going. Because the first thing, the little eight-year-old raises her hand and says, can we cuss? And I thought no. to myself, no, I said, it's okay. 
I said, it's okay. So, you, because nobody's going to see it, nobody's yeah. going to read it. And that is what Brie was saying. There's this kind of potency in those wor- words. Mm-hmm. And when it's allowed to be released onto the paper, then, you know, we rip it up and then that's a symbolic releasing of the feeling. So I did allow them to come yeah. right and rip day only. And can you, um, can you use poetry therapy without a practitioner? Can you do this on your own, you think? And what would that look like? I'd love to hear from both Definitely. of you. You first, Beth. Oh, okay. Um, well, I think um, absolutely, if you're inclined that way, poetry can evolve out of your journaling very easily. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a condensation, like concentrated juice. It just starts happening as the words um, get firmer to you and more accessible so it can arise naturally out of journaling very easily and um definitely you know they they say that poetry is one of the weird art forms that people do more than they read um reading poetry is very important i like the poem a day website um just yeah that's a good one i learned about that a few years ago too it's it's a great one great resource Yeah. yeah Yeah, so the the poetry can arise very naturally, and um, and I think that um, this is something Dr. Sloan was talking about that I think is so important. Accessibility is a big issue, and we all have access to this personally if if you're inclined and you yes, enjoy it. Exactly, G- yes. good point. So, Bree, to that end, I mean, how can someone listening to us right now? How can they start that habit of a daily writing practice? Absolutely. And I would encourage everyone to do it, especially because of Penny Baker's study, you know, 20 minutes a day and people's immune systems improve. I mean, what do you have to lose? Right. So and pretty great stat right there. Yeah. And I think sometimes we get intimidated like, oh, I have to write 20 minutes a day or like it becomes another thing to check off your to do list. And so I really encourage people to start small, right? Maybe it's I'm writing a list of things I'm grateful for today, or maybe it's I'm writing a list of things that make me happy. You know, maybe you start and you only write for two minutes and then you increase your time daily. And mm-hmm. and like Beth was saying, again, just don't put pressure on yourself no for it pressure. to be good. It, it's like a lot of art tends to be, you know. Yeah. Start a little off. bit at a time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that. Baby steps. Right, <laughs> Baby right. Steps. We've been talking about the benefits of expressive writing with Beth Jacobs, who's author and clinical psychologist, and Bree McLaughlin, a licensed clinical social worker. Thank you both so much. That episode of the Reset Podcast was produced by Landon Jones and edited by Ethan Schwab. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, if you like what you're hearing on the Reset Podcast, then you would love our newsletter. Get a download on a big news story each day and keep up with all the news impacting our region. Sign up at wbez.org slash reset news. That's all for today. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.